Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stabile. And I'm Ian Cron. And we're so glad that you're listening today. Hey, Ian. I'm hey. super excited today. Susan, I am excited to be with you like I, like I pretty much always am. Yeah. Excited or with me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. both, but I'm particularly happy when we're in Nashville together. Yeah. Music City, my favorite town in America. Well, we're going to talk to one of my favorite people in America today. I understand why. Because my friend Nadia Boltzweber is going to be on our show today, and I, um, I like her for 1,000 reasons. Can you give us maybe the top three or four? Uh, sure. She's broken and real. She believes in Jesus and all the stuff that Jesus does, you know, the healing and the singing and the preaching and the friending and the bringing in other folks that don't belong and all that. And um, she's one of those people that if I'm ever in big trouble, mm-hmm. she's like in the top five I call. Really? Yep. Oh, that's great. I actually, Nadia, you and I met, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know Nadia anywhere near, I mean, barely, right? But we met at uh, the Wild Goose Festival. That was the first time I met you. Yeah, that's right. We had a disagreement about the Neville brothers. I don't remember that. What was it? (laughs) Well, I I just can't stand them. And and I think (laughs) I just... Aaron Neville's voice just drives me bonkers. That is funny. And, yeah, and you were defending them, so it was good. Hold on a second. Now, <laughs> now hold on. Well, because I think Yellow Moon is one of the best records of the, I don't know, 1980s or 90s. It, it, Daniel Lanois, but Jim Chapey, our wonderful mutual friend. Jim, do you hate the Neville brothers too? I have an appreciation for them, but they're not my favorite. This is an eight thing. I think That's the, very de- I think the eights just don't like the Neville brothers. I don't know. Joe Stabile um, spends a lot of time with the Neville brothers between our house and the church. Really? Yeah. And George Strait, which is what I love about. Yeah. Yeah. Joe. About right. Joe. Yeah. We need to have Joe on. We'll do a country music program one day. Okay. Yeah. Nadia, we're so Joe glad took, you're here. Joe took me horseback riding. Yes, he did. The last time you were at our house, <laughs> Nadia and Joe went horseback riding. It was a good day. It was a hot it, day in Texas, and was, those two took off. It was a good day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I need to, uh, Joe's never taken me horseback riding. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a trip. All right. Well, I'm going to ask the next time that I'm there. So how are you, girl? I'm good. I'm good. Good. What are the last yeah. three things you did that you loved? Uh, well, uh, I did three. Th- uh, it's like 9.15 in my time, mm-hmm. a.m., mm-hmm. and I already did... Uh, a yoga class, and I had office hours for people at church from 6.30 to 8, where people just gather at a coffee shop and hang out together, and then I did some pastoral care. So uh, I've had three great things, and it's only 9.15, so you can't really beat that. You can't beat that, but I'm going to back up a little on that for <laughs> people who may have picked up a slight change in your morning routine. Did you say that you did oh, yoga? I know. It's so embarrassing. I know. <laughs> Why is that embarrassing? I love yoga. She does CrossFit. Because no, oh. I'm an eight. I'm like a hardcore CrossFitter. I was for years. 
And I mean, really competitive. I, a year ago after the CrossFit Open, which is a five-week-long international competition that people at affiliates all over the world compete in, I was in the top 10% worldwide for women in my age group a year ago. Wow. And about six months ago, I just looked at it, and I love CrossFit, but I looked at it, and I just thought, that feels unkind to do to myself. <laughs> But you oh, know, right. that is such an eight thing. By the way, so you know, I have an eight daughter. She's, you have she's an eight mother. And I have an eight mother. So I know exactly what you're saying. My daughter can push herself physically to the point yep. where I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. that is not good for you. Right. That, yep. that, and I, I just thought, I, I'm going to be gentle with myself. Like, I've just pushed so hard. And it was satisfying, and I loved it. I'm not really, I'm not really given to regret or anything like that. It's just, I'm, I'm 47. I can't keep doing it. To no, my you're body, not. You're 47. You know? I wouldn't have guessed yes. that. No, nobody and I'm would not, guess I'm that. I'm not blowing smoke at you either. That, that wouldn't yeah. have been my. Yeah, call. yeah. Wow. That's because yeah. you know why she looks so good. Why? She knows exactly when to switch from CrossFit to yoga. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Now, but I bet you she's doing the 90-minute hot yoga class. She's doing a Bikram class for 90 minutes probably. I don't probably. think so. What You're kind doing of yoga? Regular, what kind of yoga are you no, doing? I do level two, like the power flow classes. So I like doing the intense ones, but it's not the heated kind because okay. I, like, I don't like being hot. No. All right. But um, no, it's, it's been good. And it's been really cool to go from something I was really good at to something I'm not good at at all. And mm. so... It's been good for the ego to, like, there's this one pose. I'd, I literally just fall over every time we're in that pose. I just tip over like a, like a cow being pushed in the middle of the night. Like, right. I just over. <laughs> and um, in half moon, I hate that pose. Actually, I was in, I did a Q&A, I think it was at UVA a, a couple months ago. Yeah. And during Q&A, someone's like, hey, Pastor Nadia, what are your hopes and dreams for the future? And I said, well... You know, I don't really go in for that so much. Like, uh, but I guess right now I hope I could get through a yoga class without getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh. my big. That's my big hope. How's that going? Future. And it, it was the same week I put up a tweet that said, "I, I, I get what can only be described." as road rage when I'm stuck behind someone walking slowly in a prayer labyrinth. Uh. <laughs> I'm like, you pretentious little shit. Get out of the way. Like, no one, you know, like, oh, yeah, we see how into it you are because you're going so slow. No one's impressed. Could Move you get on, your man. mindful ass out of my way? Exactly, exactly. Oh, my God. I, that's a, I need that bumper sticker. <laughs> let's make it you and i'll make it let's make up some bumper stickers yeah it's good get your mindful ass out of my lane <laughs> except for here in colorado it's get your stoned ass out of my lane there you oh. go. people are like what what's changed because we have 500 marijuana dispensaries in denver and um and there's just weed everywhere everywhere smells like weed and people are like <laughs> what's changed i'm like mostly there's a lot more people not driving up to the speed limit yeah, like that's right. Yeah, a lot of slow driving happening in Denver. So my daughter, my daughter, my other daughter, Maddie, just graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder. Oh, I I went there. Did you really? Yeah, that's great. So yeah. you know now, uh, have you been there recently? You, you know how many pot shops are there, right? Oh sure, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's hard to be in, I've been in recovery 27 years. It's tough for me to go to Boulder and visit my daughter. It's like, you know, I it's know. legal now. I it's, know. It's oh. been hard for me too. I mean, there've been moments where I've been like, thought about it, you know, like, oh, you know, it's legal. It, you know, it's, it'd probably be okay. Or it's I was not drinking. Some... It's exactly. not like it's, drinking. It's like, I mean, I'm... I smoked a lot of dope, but really alcohol was my problem. So maybe it'd be okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That voice would get like, you in trouble. <laughs> I can check. There are a gazillion ways I can check out, you know, and I, I'm just such an addict that it doesn't matter what it is. And just throughout my life, I've tried to choose how, like, less damaging things, you know, like working out is the addiction I have. Right. So, but it doesn't damage me and other people as much as some of my other ones. So funny. I'm a four on the, on the Enneagram and we're going to. And Nadia's so, an eight, by the way. Nadia, I know. Yeah. An, an eight. I'm going <laughs> to ask Nadia in a second to maybe kind of describe it from her experience. If she had described someone what being an eight is like, but, but just to your uh, point about addictions, which I also want to talk about in, in a moment yeah. is, at a meeting a while back, the, you know, one of the few things I've ever said where everyone kind of nodded their head is, I never met a feeling I didn't want to change. Oh, oh damn. <laughs> oh, no. oh, oh, my God. Right? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I mean, it's so true. I, you know, if I feel good, I want to feel a lot better. Like, I, you know, oh. if I feel bad, I want to feel a little bit more melancholy and deep in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, man, yeah. I just I got to change every feeling that comes away. That is genius. That mm. is, like, so astute, man. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, sure. I don't want to move on until both of you talk a little bit about the fact that uh, you're in recovery. And we talk about the Enneagram in recovery. Yeah. And then we'll move to some other topic, but let's don't leave it. I'm afraid we won't come back to it. Let's ask Nadia, what, if you had to describe, uh, let's say, cause you, and this is great because I love having pastors. We've had one or two pastors on. That's awesome. I love that. Um, if you had to describe to somebody what an eight is, the challenger <laughs> is, what, how would you describe the experience of being an eight? Well, I always say, like, if you're in a movie theater and the, the, the movie starts, but it's a little out of focus or the sound is off, the first person to jump up and go tell the manager, that's the eight. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. Right? Yep. Just immediately. And being an eight is, like, experiencing everything like a punch in the gut. Mm. Like, everything just feels like a punch in the gut to me. And, um, and there's a way that I... Uh, you feel every, I feel everything in my body, you know, mm. as an eight. And I don't know if that's an eight thing particularly, but I, I was is. with, yeah. I was with Richard Rohr a couple of weeks ago. We were on this long walk and I was telling him about doing yoga and how much it's affected me. And, you know, I have all these friends who've gone through the living school with Richard and who are like, yeah, you, you got to do centering prayer 20 minutes in the morning. I'm like, I cannot do centering prayer. Like it's not the contemplation that works for me. And yet this yoga practice has really messed with me, like in, in ways that I can't deny. And I, that keep coming up in my life that are good. And, and Richard just like stopped walking and he goes, Oh my gosh, 
that makes sense. Like you're an eight, like Mm -hmm. it has to be physical. Like if it's going to, if that contemplation, that space of, of contemplation is going to come to me, it's going to have to happen through a really deeply physical way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just happen by, you know, sitting on a cushion. So, um, and, and Richard was like, that makes sense because you're an Mm -hmm. eight. So I, I feel like I just experience, I experience my strength in my body. I experience my my um, sadness in my body. Mm-hmm. Everything just feels physical to me. Everything I experience. So that's the best description I've ever heard from a body centered type. Yeah, right. From an eight, nine, or a one talking about how yeah. it affects their bodies. It's interesting that you and Richard had that talk because years ago, like maybe maybe more than fifteen years ago. He did a, a series of talks on different ways of knowing. Oh, I remember that. Remember? There's seven it was, or eight of them. Yes, right? and they were really good. And yeah. I've asked for the notes from him over and over, and of course he you know, doesn't have them. But, um, but bod- Epiphany was one. I remember that. Yep, yeah, yep. Okay. And bodily knowing was one of the ways mm-hmm. of knowing. Yeah. yeah. And it just occurred to me when you were talking that it would be interesting to, to put ways of knowing with different... Enneagram triads or Enneagram stances to see if they fit. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking about when you were were just saying that about, you know, the the body center types, eight, nine, and one. So my wife's a nine. Yeah. And so, and she's not very good at our, like most nines or like many nines, she's not very good at articulating what's going on in her interior world. And so what I've learned now is two things with her. One is I'll ask her if she's upset about something. I go, where is it in your body? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me where it is and put your hand on it. Right. You know, like if it's in your, you know, do you feel tight in your throat, in your chest? Is it just tell me where you feel mm-hmm. it? And then mm-hmm. sort of just as an act of solidarity with yourself to let you know that you are with yourself, just, you know, or I'll place my hand there. Mm-hmm. And, and she won't know how to say what it is, but just knowing where it is in her body makes mm-hmm. a difference to her. And if she's upset, I can tell her, don't do that, but I really just need to put my arm on her. Yeah. And yeah, she just feels it through the body. It's mm. so interesting because I haven't thought about this in years, but maybe um, maybe eight years ago or more, I did a summer program for interns at the at Richard Center, the Center for Action and Contemplation, and I did it on mindless violence. Mm. And I'd been to an event where um, there were many more people there, and Richard talked about pain and healing, and he had uh, participants use a piece of uh, red duct tape <clears throat> for the closing ceremony, I mean the closing worship, to mark on their bodies where they were carrying pain. Mm. So in this mindless violence event that I did, I had a Vietnam vet who came from rural Minnesota, and his story essentially was that the farm couldn't support everybody. He was going to go to St. John's to college. He had a football scholarship. He went out drinking when he graduated from high school. The town sheriff wanted to teach him a lesson, so he put him in jail overnight, and St. John's withdrew his scholarship offer. And he didn't know what to do because there was no money, so he just went downtown after he read the letter and joined the Army. And he ended up in Vietnam. He got shot in the hip and shot in the knee, and he's like 6'6", this guy. And so he's with me these five days talking about mindless violence and violence. And then we did that thing. And he was an eight on the Enneagram for sure. And we did that worship thing, and he asked somebody to go help him with his red tape. And he came out from the other room wrapped, Mm. wrapped in red duct tape. Mm. And he said, the pain is everywhere, and I have no idea what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. 
Boy, the Enneagram could help with that if you mm. if you if you get it, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, I think for so. For sure. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, here's a here's what I know that people say about eights, right? These yeah. these amazing challengers. Um, sometimes they'll say something like, um, "You're too blunt, aggressive, and combative. Uh, you're intimidating, and you wait. You... What's your point? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, continue. <laughs> Um, that, uh, you know, you kind of, you run roughshod over people that, uh, um, you know, you're, uh, when you walk in a room, your presence is so big. It just, you know, it's like, when you walk into a space, you know, like it just sucks up all the oxygen. So, uh, how does that, I mean, like you're a, you're a pastor and, uh, and you know, you've done this wonderful counseling this morning. I'm just wondering, how has that helped you or hurt you in ministry? Mm. Mm. Ooh, yeah. Well, it's very interesting that um, being, a pa- being a pastor and sort of doing it, um, being able to show up as a pastor is, is really only possible for me if I'm in a good space. Mm. Because eights go to um, two, right? Yeah, right. Isn't that right? Yeah. In, um, mm-hmm. in health. And so when, when I can sort of, I'm not angry, I'm not feeling, you know, any of that, that intense stuff I feel all the time, that I can be really compassionate. Like I can be really with someone. And, um, but, but it takes a lot of personal work in order to do it because I don't have the like pastoral personality. You know, right. I'm not that quivering mass of emotional availability. Stop talking about me. <laughs> I was about to go. I went. <laughs> you know, that like, come to me, I'll take care of all your problems. Like, I'm what's your like point? That. But, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is like it, the good part about being an eight is that I don't, have the trap so many pastors have, which is that need to be needed. I don't have that. Yep. So um, I don't get in the, that stuff doesn't get in the way. So I think that's the way in which it's good to be an aide as a pastor. Also, I leave stuff at work. I don't bring it home. Like it doesn't, if I can love these people, they can be going through something really hard. I'm not absorbing it right? I can be present to it and then I leave it. So I think in that way, it's help being an eight helpful in this, this kind of work, Mm. but it takes a lot of personal work and a lot of, um, self-awareness, especially the sort of my knowing and being responsible with the fact that my voice has a lot of weight Yeah, because the way that the church runs um, we don't have a committee system. So everything is sort of opt-in. So like I'll say, who wants to have a liturgy guild meeting for Ash Wednesday and the Sundays in Lent? And whoever shows up is the liturgy guild that day. So this year that included three people who'd never been to an Ash Wednesday service in their lives, which oh, is really? the benefit of doing it that way. Right. But in order for it to work, I have to be willing to let go of two things, which which is um, control and predictability. So 
in order to run the church that in that opt-in way that's totally open and anyone can kind of come and be a part of it, I, you can't predict who's going to come or if anyone will come, first of all. And I can't, I have to let go of control, meaning I have to allow them to participate. So it's a very particular type of leadership and it's not anything goes. So you're, I'm still leading. I'm still holding that space. But if somebody has an idea, I have to check in with myself and I have to check in with the room and I have to do it honestly and I have to do it quickly. So somebody had this one idea, which was, just for the record, the worst idea that ever came out of a liturgy guild meeting, <laughs> which if you know House for All Sinners and Saints, you'll get why it was bad, which is we were planning Good Friday and he said, well, my wife does a mime of the Stations of the Cross and it made our our, our previous priest cry. And I thought, well, I bet it did. Oh, my God. Um, so... I had to, ch- and I checked in with the room and people were like, no, 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 no. Well, in a lot of Christian settings, a lot of bad ideas happen because we just nice each other to death. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to say, oh, that might not work for us, but there's a way to do it with kindness. And I said, well, we have this ethos where we don't have, nothing's a performance at our church. We don't have a band. We don't have an organ, right? Like we create everything ourselves. So to have the liturgical action stop on Good Friday so we can watch one person perform something doesn't really fit the ethos of the church. But we haven't done Stations in the Cross for a while, so let's talk about how we might incorporate that into Good Friday, right? So that's a particular type of leadership that I have to check with myself. I have to check myself. But now the other example is in a Liturgy Guild meeting, we, uh, during Advent, have a what we call the Advent waiting room. We have the Spanish courtyard. We light it. Everyone waits outside, and we enter worship together during Advent <clears throat> because Advent's about waiting. And so normally we would sing this Tizay chant, um, Wait for the Lord, which mm. has worked really well. And then somebody had the idea, let's sing Prepare Ye the Way of the Lord from God's Bell. Now, my immediate reaction was, hell no. Like, Not doing no, it. like I could just see like Stuart with a tambourine in the corner. It's just like, <laughs> I'm just, <clears throat> I just was like, I just, I thought like, I'm so cynical that I was like, no way. But I stopped and I took the temperature of the room and I thought, I don't think anyone else is cringing. Mm. And so, you know what my job is in that moment? Shut the hell up. Mm. Right. That's my job because my if i had expressed myself the the room would have gone my way because so i have to be responsible with the fact that my voice has a lot of weight mm. and and it takes a bit of self awareness and i don't always do it right but like that's the stuff that ends up being hard but if you do enough of your work you can manage it you're not going to run roughshod over everyone mm. boy i would do i would play that over and over and over for yeah. eights that we're trying to teach yeah. about eightness because, mm-hmm. you know, the story I've been using lately, Nadia, I don't think you've ever heard it, is there was a church secretary who yeah. was an eight on the Enneagram who <clears throat> was in a church that I worked with a couple times a year, and she announced one week that one of her friends took her out for coffee, and uh, they got to Starbucks, and her friend said, I've been waiting for 15 years to tell you that when the drum major's too far ahead of the band, the music sounds terrible. Yeah, totally. And that's exactly what you're talking about with the stories that you're telling. And eights have a tendency because they're smart and quick and can lead and generally know what's going to work and what isn't to be too far ahead of the band. Mm. Yeah. Ready, fire, aim. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. actually, that's in our in our in our book. That's one of the one of the phrases that yeah. I, I use. That that uh, um, it's like this quick draw McGraw thing. You know, it's like yep. you know, big guns don't know how big they are, especially young eights. Man, they just don't know how big their guns are, and they just yeah. p- pull and fire really, really right. fast, and right. they don't realize how much collateral damage right. there's going to be. You know. So I have a question for you because the theme keeps coming up, and, and um, we've never really spoken about this with people, although we're going to do a, a, a show a little bit later on about it, um, which is about doing your work. You know, we yeah. talk, a lot of people come to Enneagram stuff, and they, they, they get a lot of information about themselves, right. but there's no conversation about, okay, well, so now what? So right. can you describe for you, like, what what does doing your work mean so that you are in the healthiest place of your eightness? Like, how do you get there? Well, I don't think you ever get there. That's the point. Like, you're you always doing it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, well, I did my work and now I'm fine. It's like, it's constantly being willing to be rigorously honest mm-hmm. about what am I doing? What are my motives? Why am I reacting in a certain way? Mm. Right? To be really honest about because I want it to be I'm reacting in a certain way because that guy's an asshole, right? right? But really it's about I'm reacting in a certain way because I feel threatened by them or because of something around my ambition or something about uh how other people perceive me as being threatened or whatever, any right. number of things. And the thing that's very tricky about being an eight is you're very astute in your observations. Um, You're not off in la-la land, right? Right. You can name stuff so clearly that it seems like it's always going to be the truth. Like, and it might be the truth on one level Mm -hmm. and it's so easy to stay there because now everyone agrees with me because I can put things in a certain way that everyone's like, oh, good point. I see what you're saying. And then we can stop. Right. But the thing is, is that that's not really doing my, so that's, what's dangerous. One of the dangers of being an eight is that it's so, because now, Hey, everyone agrees with me. So obviously I'm right. And it's like, I'm the only one who knows the fact that I, that was only a partial truth. Right. Right. And that there, there's more to it, you know? And so if I can get, if I can be honest with myself first about the, there's more to it, Mm -hmm. right. Which often means vulnerability, right. Being able to admit, look, I'm reacting this way because I'm hurt, you know, or something I don't want to admit. Then I can sort of look at my part of a situation and then not have to bring out the big guns and get everyone on my side against somebody or something, you mm. know, and just sit with stuff a little bit. That's the hardest thing for AIDS. So how do I you... just want to take action all the time. I don't want to sit with shit, man. No, okay. So all right, this is good. This is really good. And so I'm sorry if I'm asking too many questions. You want to go? You ask a question. Because I'm, I'm just too... I'm kind Keep of going. Pumped. You're good. Well, I just want to talk about vulnerability for a second because for AIDS, that's such a huge issue. Like... Uh, to reveal those tender, more vulnerable feelings and uh, that innocence that gets lost for for eights, you know, to to kind of recapture that and reveal it to others. Um, Like, that's so hard and you're so defended against it. How have you learned to develop the self-awareness you're talking about and to be vulnerable so that relationships can happen? Well, the the interesting thing about that 
in terms of myself as a pastor and as a writer and a speaker is that, you know, my MO for most of my life was just to, I wanted everyone to just know I'm strong as hell. I'm strong, 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 just strength. Right. And to really be very defended, like you said. And I thought that's how I'll be powerful. Right. And yet my real power comes in my capacity to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, really vulnerable in my writing and in my preaching. And when I, when I'm speaking, like as a speaker, um, it's like so important to me to be emotionally present. And so I, I'm vulnerable when I'm speaking and, um, and then I have to, there's a cost to that, you know, but, um, but it's just been interesting that my real power has come from my capacity to be vulnerable. That's where I've been powerful in the world. Mm. One of the um, things that I've observed in you that I think feeds that is I've had a quite the gift of <clears throat> being with you around our home when uh, you were writing a sermon, and you read through the scriptures for the day, and we were talking about that, and I said, oh, I have such a great story for that after we had talked for a while, and you said, uh, I want to hear the story, but when I preach, I only use my own stories. And I've told that story a hundred times because that makes a preacher vulnerable when the stories they're telling are their own stories. Mm. But, But my community has drawn that out of me. So just to be clear, like when I met uh, somebody who's one of my dearest friends now, Sarah Miles, we met at Greenbelt yeah. in, I think, 2008. She's and um, I-, I didn't know who she was and she didn't know who I was. And we haven't gone probably 10 days without speaking to each other since the day we met. And um, I told her I was just starting the church, just barely. And we became friends over that weekend. And I said, I don't. I don't have the right personality for this. Like I don't have the right skills for it. And I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she goes, Oh, it's all right. You'll be fine. Cause your people will make you into the pastor. They need you to be. I love that. And I thought, I thought that's a weird thing to say. That doesn't sound right. Mm. And I'll be damned if that is not exactly what has happened because my people, these people, they needed a pastor who was willing to be vulnerable and self-disclosing in their sermons and the, and I feel like they have made me into that preacher mm. uh, because that's what they needed. Well, we are running out of time today, and we haven't had nearly enough, so we just have to do another show. Yeah, we do. We haven't talked about recovery, right. and we yep. I want Nadia to talk about her people. Yeah. Um, and so, thank you so much. Um, you know I love you, and I love hanging with you under any conditions. And you and Ian seem to be doing great. Yeah. So yeah. all's well, um, and yeah. we're going to just do another show. Thanks so much for Nadia, today. thank you so much. It's been a Absolutely. real joy. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so now, like, I didn't know Nadia that well when we when we started this. I, mean, I knew a lot about her, yeah. right? But now I know why you dig her so much. She is amazing. She's a wonderful human being. And you know what? Can I just say something real fast? She's one of the more integrated, maybe the most integrated eight I've ever spoken to. Like, self-aware and uh, sorry, all you eights out there who I know and probably are feeling wounded right now. Like Jim Chafee, our engineer and producer, he's over there. He's not crying, I can assure you. He's actually giving me a hand gesture that, like, it ain't wood. But, um, like, super integrated, like self-aware. Mm-hmm. Self-awareness is like everything. You know, um, I often say that people who have struggled with addiction and find themselves in recovery 
are so much better prepared to receive the wisdom of the Enneagram. Mm, we gotta do a we gotta do a show about that. Exactly, and it'd be so great. You know, we said we wanted to talk about recovery with Nadia and you together, and we didn't get to. So we should do that on a a next show. And I just want to say thanks to her and I. I love everybody we've had on, and I love all of our friends. And there's just a spot in my heart for this one. Yeah. I can see why. Everybody, we've had such a ball today. Thanks for being part of our family. And our book is available for pre-order. All right. See you all later. Bye. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram. Produced by our friend Jim Chapey, engineered by Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Laurie Chaffer. Please visit our website, www.theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and information on our public appearances around the country. And you can pre-order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Join us next time for part two of our conversation with Nadia Boltz-Weber.